Welcome to the Sendcast. My name is Dale Pickles. I'm the Managing Director of B Squared and the host of the Sendcast, the Special Needs Podcast. Each week, we talk about a different topic within the world of special educational needs to improve our knowledge, provide support to professionals working in schools, and to empower parents. In this episode, our guest is Fintan O'Regan. Fintan has been a head teacher, lecturer at Fletcher University, and now works as a trainer consultant for schools and school support systems. This episode is titled The Curious Case of ADHD. And in this episode, we're obviously going to be talking about ADHD, what it is, what it isn't, and how to support individuals with ADHD. Before we get started, have you heard of the Virtual Send Conference? This is a conference we started running in 2019 that makes CPD around SEND more affordable and easier to access. It runs twice a year over the internet, not just in London, but you can watch the videos wherever you need to as they are always available. For more information, visit www.virtualsendconference.com. At the end of the episode, I'll be giving you a discount code so you can save some money when you purchase access. Now on with the podcast. This week's show is titled The Curious Case of ADHD. Our guest is Fintan O'Regan. Fintan is a trainer and consultant for schools and school support systems, including social services, health, the police, and foster carers. He supports them by providing behavior management strategies for children and families struggling with SEND and behavior issues. Before this, he's worked for a number of organizations, including Nascent, Institute of Education, Leicester University, the UK ADHD Network, and the European ADHD Alliance. And before all of this, he was a head teacher of a specialist school for students with ADHD, ASD, and ODD. Welcome to the show, Finton. Thank you, Dale. ADHD is a term that's used a lot, sometimes incorrectly. Some people see it as an excuse for bad behavior. Some think all children with ADHD should be medicated. But let's start right at the beginning. What does the acronym ADHD mean? It can be a confusing an acronym, particularly as you, a lot of people will also refer to it as ADD. And I'll try and demystify this right now. ADHD is Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, and that is actually how we classify children who fit um, three main characteristics, that is hyperactivity, inattention, and impulsivity. The the term ADD comes from a, a way of describing children who don't have the hyperactivity, but have what's called hypoactivity. In reality, um, in terms of the diagnosis officially, this is in uh, the DSM-5, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. It's quite a mouthful. ADHD is the official term given to all of the, all of the different, tra- all different trends that you find underneath that umbrella. And what we have, we have what's called hyperactive impulsive type, which essentially would be what we tend to refer to as ADHD. We have what's called inattentive type, which is essentially the ADD. And then we have something called combined type, which is when you have characteristics of both. Okay. Keeping it simple. Why not? <laughs> so ADHDs, it's it's been around for about 30 years, that term, hasn't it? Longer, yes. Yes, it's, as I've said, tried to say before, and it is, it's sort of like, I think for most people, there's, it's a bit like with autistic spectrum. We still call it ASD because people know what we're talking about. And we still use the term ASD and Asperger's because most people we know what we're talking about in a higher form. Officially, as you're probably aware, the term Asperger's is also 
be removed. Yep. So I think I think for purposes of basically distinguishing individuals who have hyperactivity and non-hyperactivity, it's not a problem to talk about ADHD and ADD because most people will understand what they, they are, even if officially that's not the correct term. So to make your point, yes, it, the, the term itself, ADHD, even though it's had different you know, ways of, of the traits being described has been around now. It's probably from, it's probably since the 1950s. It was, it, it's fir, it was first classified. And, and partly that was because we, the, the Americans took on the term and used it in a broader sense. Before that, we've always had a term which has described similar symptoms called hyperkinetic disorder. And then you have a different world body. It was the international classification of diseases, if you like, that would have this term hyperkinetic disorder, HD, they called it, recognizing some of the traits. If you want a direct comparison, and we're supposed to be dis- demystifying it, not making this more complicated, <laughs> hyperactivity disorder would probably be equivalent to what is called what is now combined type ADHD. To bo- bottom line is it was the most extreme form of these traits. And therefore there was no, there was no mention, if you like, of those students who had hypoactivity, who were the inattentive ones. And those are the ones who were not recognized under the ICD-10. And that's why most pediatricians and child psychiatrists now within Europe have now moved over to the, to the DSM-5 classification. And if that wasn't complicated enough, I'm about to tell you how it gets more complicated if you ask me a question on diagnosis. Shall I ask you a question on diagnosis then? <laughs> Thank you. I'm just pleased I'm not a, not having to do diagnosis. But until recently, until the, the DSM-5 was come out, which came about seven, eight years ago, you also found that overlap with ADHD is the norm and not the exception. So overlap with ADHD traits, which remember are hyperactivity, inattention, and impulsivity, it's, it very often overlaps with ASD, Autistic Spectrum Disorder, and a number of other conditions. Prior to the DSM-5, if you were diagnosed with ADHD, you couldn't therefore have ASD. Most good pediatricians, most child psychiatrists ignored those issues, but a lot of people kept to the fort, kept to the stage. So, so since DSM-5 has come in, overlap has been recognized as being, as being allowed to happen. And why that's important is, is because people who were working as a result of a diagnosis were obviously trying to support individuals, and some of those individuals would have areas not being recognized by the initial diagnosis they had. And some people kept very much to a very stringent approach on that. So as you can see, a lot of people were, were not represented correctly by a diagnosis they had. And as I said, I'm trying to make this simpler than, than it's sounding right now. So a child couldn't be eight years ago or so ADHD and ASD officially recognised. That is actually correct. That is actually correct. And even though overlap, even though people recognise the fact this may actually have a, be occurring, they were somewhat controlled, if you like, by the by the sort of like the the you know the the official line. Wow, that's quite interesting because they they can hugely overlapping. As I said, it would be more the norm than than the exception. And as I said, I think teachers in particular were probably more alert to this issue, as were parents. And uh, 
if if not ignoring the diagnosis, were being much more proactive in terms of giving a child the sort of areas that they needed. You know, for example, they wouldn't just be maybe getting like a, like a tangled toy. They would be getting a getting a visual timetable as well. But the official line was 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 difficult. I mean, it was very difficult for both parents, for teachers, and for and to a certain extent for um, you know for supervisors of schools and and with equipment and resources to be um, you know what they felt was be properly properly sort of supporting these children. Wow. Okay, so we've covered what ADHD is. What isn't ADHD? Yeah, I mean, I think. One of the things that is really important for us to recognize is that if ch- children can exhibit behavior, behavioral and learning differences from a whole range of, of, of factors, and it doesn't always have to be a label that explains, if you like, the behavioral learning differences of someone else. And that is why a, an accurate and a proper diagnosis should filter out other factors. In a word, we should be trying to, you know, work out what it what it isn't versus what it is, and 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 to a certain extent, filtering out issues whether it is more nature than nurture. I think just to give you another official line, the the thing with ADHD, it is a neurodevelopmental difference, and what that fundamentally means is that your frontal lobe areas of your brain are not working in the conventional sense at the age and stage of which you expect someone to be at a certain time in their lifespan. And that's why, to a certain extent, you, you know, some of the options that are there, and it is technically because of that, a medical condition. So, for example, a child psychiatrist can diagnose it and can a clinical psychologist and a, um, a child psychiatrist, a pediatrician as well. Whereas an education psychologist is not actually officially allowed to diagnose because it's technically a medical condition. But there's a number of other factors that can mimic the symptoms of hyperactivity, inattention, and impulsivity. And we need to be clear about those, those not being or them being the, the official or the, re, the, the real reason for what we're seeing. So I know a lot of times you see someone go, oh, look at that child, he must have ADHD, just because they're seeing him being hyperactive or jumping up. But that's part of it, and there could be many other things. Yeah, it could be many other things. I mean, the analogy is always when people say this, um, well, I have two things that people say to me. They always say to me there was no such thing as ADHD when, when I was growing up, and that's not quite true we just said this person that we are talking about was from the jenkins family or something we've always labeled and 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 labeled people maybe not in any kind of correct way and and the other thing is is uh, is that people say well you know what what's caused it now and is it to do with you know computer games and all of these things i think you know the the, the issue is is that I think we have a better understanding now about why people are different. And I think your example about, you know, the, it's the it's level of it. I mean, for example, we can all be sad from time to time, but if that sadness becomes constant, it becomes intense, it stops us getting up in the morning, it stops us, you know, uh, functioning properly, it, it's something else. It becomes depression and depression is real. You can't see it, you can't do a blood test for it, but it's real. And we know how real it is, how it can affect people. If you have somebody who's hyperactive and one day or impulsive, then, you know, there could be a whole range of factors for why this. But if it's a sustained period, 
of hyperactivity, impulsivity, and inattention, then you would be saying that there's some other reason why that's taking place. And it's investigating that and being a bit open-minded about what might be causing it, whether it is a neurodevelopmental difference or whether it is a, you know, an issue of nurture or lack of nurture. Yeah, that's that's important thing is looking for all three, not just one, looking for all three and then sort of looking at that wider picture. Yeah, I mean, the thing that I sometimes try to use is an analogy with, because a lot of terms out there for people and people can get confused with terms. I mean, there's a, there's, I saw a book the other day, it's a, an SEN a book of, of, of SEN terms, of, of terms. And there, there was like, you know, you go to A and there's about nine under A. I haven't got to the Bs yet and I haven't got to the Cs. And you, you think, well, how many terms are there out there to describe people? And it can feel quite intimidating and, and really quite, you know, quite scary, if you like, if you're a teacher trying to understand people. I think, you know, it, it is about being aware that, you know, certain terms are only there at this time. And we've seen, I've just explained to you how hypogenetic disorder has now become ADHD. I think the key for us now going moving forward is not to work so much on labels, but to try and help supporting traits. And I'm always trying to get this across, that the traits of ADHD are hyperactivity, inattention, and impulsivity. So it's supporting those traits, which is more important than supporting the term. So I've noticed whenever you, you don't talk about a disability, that you say a difference. So that's saying it's not a negative or a positive, it's a difference. It's a developmental difference. I mean, the issue is, is that, and this is another area that, you know, one-year-olds and two-year-olds don't have an awful lot of self-orientation and, and self-discipline when it comes to their impulsivity. They kind of reach out and take what they want when they want it. And what happens is as we go through the phase, you get to a five or six, you know, people start registering that if you do this or that, and you're going to, there's going to be a response for it. Well, some people just aren't getting that, that same level of, uh, of control at the same stage as others. And here's the issue. If we, if we take on board as a developmental difference, then I think we start judging people differently because a nine-year-olds are supposed to act like nine-year-olds do because they've had that experience of nine years of learning not what to do. But children with developmental differences are usually two or three years behind their peers. So you have a child with ADHD who might be chronologically nine, but he or she has the impulse control of a, of a seven or a six-year-old he might have a lateral thinking ability, by the way, of someone who's older. But the point is, if he's in a group of nine-year-olds where we group kids and he's actually functioning as a six-year-old, his impulse control, he will stand out. He will, he will be very and judged to be standing out. And if we use the same kind of methods that we would use for a traditional learner at nine-year-old to be recognizing that the wrong choice, we're not it's not necessarily, it's not that you don't, you can't remind them, but it's obviously not going to work to the same extent because he or she's not at the same developmental level as their peers. And so their ability to learn from that, making the wrong choice will not be the same. But it does, because you're saying going back to the term differences and you talked about there that the lateral thinking may be higher, but it's that impulsiveness could be lower. So that, when you give them a challenge, will lead to a very could lead to a very different result. 
because they might approach it very differently. Exactly. And this is what we, we find, and, and you know, this will be a, a time for another. The thing that we look for in a school system with that nine-year-olds, we, we very much look for compliance. We look for people to do things in a sort of similar way. And you will find that children with ADHD, if you allow them the freedom to, to basically express themselves, will, will, maybe, will maybe approach a task in a, in a very different way. It might be a way in which you don't appreciate them doing it, but it might be in a very different way. And I think if, if it really came down to what are the, the, the real core issues of ADHD, it's interesting because I think people focus so much on the hyperactivity. It's in the word, ADHD, the hyperactivity. The hyperactivity, to a certain extent, is a, is a trait which is kind of them. It's kind of also their personality. You know, they are usually quite extrovert people. And I don't really want to change that. I think the two core symptoms that are the ones that we should be trying to support them on to, if you like, narrow the gap so they can be at a developmental level are the impulsivity, the lack of self-control, the lack of self-awareness, the lack of the inability to hesitate. And the other one, which is so crucial in learning, and it is the inattention. So for me, it's the two I's that we should be focusing on versus the H. And why isn't it called AIHI then? I I think there's a, it, it, <laughs> as you've seen, it, it's a, I had to it, think about that. It would make a, it for me. It would make a lot of a lot of sense. I, I will tell you an anecdote because I the other thing I want to quickly say before I tell you the anecdote. Now I think about it is. See, one of the things that people say about people or individuals have ADHD, going back to the past, they say that he or she is not mature. Now, what you're saying when you're saying someone's not mature, what you're saying is he is not at the same level as his expectations should be for their age. And, and people in the past say he's immature. And actually, in the past, they were probably right. He was immature. What they were really saying is he's not at the same developmental level as his peers. So my point is that the word mature, immature, was actually used as a substitute for what we now know is developmental, and, and that's why it gets confusing. But when I first, I'd never had any training in this term when I was a teacher, um, and so I, I was trying to make it up as I went along with individuals. I knew this person was different. I didn't know why. And this was uh, early in the early 80s. I, I was at a school. I never heard of the term. This other teacher said, oh, I think he's got ADD. And I said, what is it? I've never heard of that. And it's what you said about anacronyms. And she said, oh, I think it's called attention devastation disorder. And uh, because of the way in which he was acting. So I looked at him and thought, well, that, that makes a lot of sense, really. And, and so, as I said, you know, our knowledge and our uh, about the label, if you like, and the traits have improved since then. I do think that maturity is I just find that I find it quite interesting. Because my mum always like asked me, well, I'm 41, when, <laughs> when will I grow up? Yeah. And part of me goes, why do I need to? You know, it's a really interesting question. I said before, that's the answer I give when, when, when people say, you know, there was no such thing as ADHD in the past. We used to describe people just from the Jenkins family, I know that there was a family near us that we used to, that's not their name, by the way, but we used to describe them in that way. They were kind of the cheeky chappies and you'd say, oh, he, he just seems to be immature. So we were describing people in the other way. And the other reason, um, you know, when people say to me, I got a question recently and said, does it really exist? And I was thinking, first of all, well, I hope it does. I've written 10 books on the blooming thing. 
But the other reason I was thinking is it might be the best way of describing a group of symptoms right now that can't be better explained by any other reason. I think that's what you have from these terms. It might not stick this way. It might, it might be A-A-I-I-I-D in the future. I don't know. But at right now, it, it might be the best way of describing a group of traits or symptoms that can't be better explained by any other reason. I think that's all what you really have in the end. So this comes back to uh, is labelling or a good or bad thing? And to me, that's in the eye of the beholder. Some people see a lay, they don't want their child to have a label. They're worried about a label. It's going to hold them back in life. Another person will say, well, if he's got that label and it's ASD or dyslexia, that generally means he should get a little bit extra support. He should get, which will help him achieve what he's going or she's going to achieve. Very much so. It can be used in, as we know, in very, in very different ways. I think I tend to err more on the fact that it's better to have an understanding of the child's developmental style than to sort of try and look for other reasons for why that's happened. I know as a young teacher, I used to, um, you know, very much cite parents as, uh, or for maybe not having done what they could have done on behalf of the child in comparison to the other children I was seeing. And then I learned uh, something quite interesting about how, uh, how genetic this particular term is, and, and that might be the topic of another question that you might ask, ask later. So I think, I think when you understand where, how a child sees the world differently, it, it does help you. But your point about the beholder is very important. And um, if, for example, a child with ASD, and you got understanding what that term means, you know that he or she is rather... They're kind of black and white. They don't take things, you know, they, literally they are very very literal and they don't like a lot of change. So I think that helps you understand their world and helps you, therefore, adapt your approach so they can you can reduce their anxiety. So I think that, you know, understanding developmental issues is, is overall really important. But certain people just play what's in front of them. You know, they just see this person as different. They do do something different, and I've seen that happen too. Yeah. Okay, so I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to bite the bullet and ask about the genetic part. Okay, well, this is where it's interesting because when I was a young teacher, then I would be in a room sometimes on a parent evening, and in would come the parents, and I would look at the parents and I would say, "That's where he gets it from," type of thing, and I actually was probably more correct in that analysis than I knew. Because the issue with ADHD is very highly genetic. It's got an 80% coefficiency in genetics. It doesn't mean it's always in the direct family, but it can sometimes be in the indirect family. So what does that mean? It means that if you are working with a child with ADHD, it, you are very likely to be working with a family who may have the traits. And what does that mean in reality? It means that a child who has maybe difficulties with organization, with self, self-reliance on you know, doing things like homework, you know, getting into school on time with rules and rituals, essentially, may be coming from a family whose parents themselves may have problems with that too. So a child that needs more support in that than his peers may be getting less support. So it's a bit of a double whammy for that child. So I think all schools, when they're working with children with ADHD, they really need to take on board that, generally speaking, they're working with a family. So and we rely on the families to support the children. So that's why where we can, I think, we should be bearing that in mind so we don't necessarily try and load the parents with unrealistic expectations, if you like, 
support their child in the way that we see, we think they should. And I suppose some of those parents will be aware of the ADHD and they may not have it, and some of them might be completely unaware. I would say that majority of parents will be very unaware, but there's, what's been happening over the last five or six years has been a great deal more awareness about adults because, you know, this is the, you know, if you were 15 or 16 and you had Asperger traits, they don't just fall off you when you get to 18. You know, you will hopefully have narrowed the gap. You will have learned to adapt it as you got older. If you're born with ADHD, to a certain extent, you will die with ADHD, but you will have learned to have adapted those traits. But I think many parents, and the same thing with dyslexia and with other terms, have, have gone through their life blissfully unaware in a way that why they were different. But I think it's a lot more self-awareness about this, this right now. And I think many adults are, are, um, are realising that um, they have some of these traits themselves, but obviously have, have learned to adapt or have learned to find ways of, of supporting themselves. And now, obviously, they're, going, they're only recognising it by having their own children go through the process. Yeah, and you're sitting there going, it's your child, and you literally listen to going, yeah, yeah, yeah. On the seventh one, you're going, I'm not talking about my child here. <laughs> but yeah, I think there's a, there's a lot of that happening is that as people reflect and think about their child, they look at themselves or they look at their partner and go, ah. I've got a story um, that one parent came in for a meeting and often if we, I'm looking at both parents, well, you know, they'll be both sitting there and, and we were talking about a change of school. So it's quite an important meeting, but within about 10 minutes, you know, it's not always dad, but often it's dad and he's, the chair is rocking back and forth. He's looking out the window. He might be fiddling with his tie or or with a, a thing that's hanging down. And, and the mother obviously is turning around and saying, look, you know, where, but one mother turned around to me and said, I know where he gets it from. And I was thinking, oh, she's going to blame the father. And she, almost, she said, it's my brother-in-law. So for that one, we wrote down family gene pool. <laughs> wow. Okay, so next, next topic for ADHD, medication. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's always the hot, potato when it comes to any discussion about ADHD. And let's remember, there's an awful lot of things we can be doing to support children with ADHD, which start off with learning interventions, behavior modification, to a certain extent, helping them with, you know, understanding themselves and helping them in peer relationships. But medication, you know, does provide an option for supporting some of these traits. And the argument is very much that if a child has a neurodevelopmental difference, then what can support that difference? And, and medication appears to have a role in helping and reducing impulsivity, increasing attention, and to a certain extent, reducing hyperactivity. The, the issue is, though, I want to make this point, it's not the medication that, it doesn't cure them, but it acts as a way of helping us to better support them. So if you couldn't play the piano before you took medication, you won't be able to play the piano afterwards, but it might help someone teach you how to play the piano. And that's what it can do for those individuals for whom a diagnosis has been rigorous and for those people for whom we've, we've eliminated other reasons about why they may have those traits. So England and America take a very different approach to medication. And I, I watched, I think, at the beginning of this, the end of last year, a documentary by Louis Theroux on ADHD and going through that whole process. And initially I was going, why are they medicating everyone? Oh my, and it was, I found it quite shocking. And then, it, but as it went on, I found myself going, you shouldn't medicate to 
perhaps you should in but not in every not a blank not a blanket but in certain situations it helped and they talked about how the difference is yeah i mean the thing is that the americans have a very different viewpoint on on lots of things as we as we are aware but the americans took a viewpoint this is a medical condition it's caused by dopamine inefficiency noradrenaline dopamine isn't reaching to the neurotransmitters in the way they should therefore the symptoms are a result of that we're going to put the medication in and then we're going to allow the child to prosper in all the other areas of learning behavior and development we didn't take that viewpoint we took a viewpoint that medication is maybe an option if the other things don't work we're going to try the other things first and if they don't work then we're going to go with medication well it's interesting because i think we've we've both shifted our our, our viewpoints on that that in america they are now not as they're not as initially going to give medication early on they're trying other things first in fact in america interestingly enough they've taken a very different viewpoint because they're in a different cycle to us and in america in some states that uh, they will not medicate the children until they've seen the effects of medication on the parents on behalf of the children so in that particular cycle of events they've thought they're going to move more upstream so the parents will be more organized the parents will be more structured the child will benefit from those kind of role modeling behaviors and therefore their symptoms may well be reduced so they're in a different cycle to us in the uk i think we've taken a slightly more balanced view now on the fact that medication could and should be used maybe earlier in the process because what's been happening is we've been leaving medication to the very end end point and by this stage a child may have been excluded from school a number of times may become very disenfranchised with education may become very disillusioned and now the medication is not necessarily going to be beneficial at all whereas the viewpoint of maybe giving it earlier in the process to help the other things work more efficiently may well have been um, a better response so i think the stigma of both the term itself number 1 is reduced and therefore the misinformation about medication has also been better understood by parents in particular who have been talking to other parents about the pros and cons of using this option so i suppose hearing that sort of is when you're thinking about the sort of negativity because as they've, as that child's gone through the exclusions is that's going to have every single one of those events will have a lasting impact on that child all of that that can't be undone by the medication no no i mean the, the thing to take on board is that behaviors children with adhd's because impulsivity is your core symptom their behaviors are generally speaking non-premeditated like the first time they often think about something they've already done it so therefore you know and you still have to be be prepared to take the consequences of that what we're trying to do is we're trying to get people who generally speaking who's who's behave is non-premeditated to do one thing that would help support them make a different choice that is to hesitate so to hesitate so they can stop before they react but the thing about it is is that that takes some training because if you give a child who hits people indiscriminately medication and that's all you do what will happen is he'll then just think about he'll just choose who he hits he'll pick a person to hit as opposed to hit people screaming if you give a child medication and teach him not to hit you're more likely then to get a better response about hitting so it's not the medication that changes the behavior 
what the medication does, it allows the child to hesitate long enough so you can help him to make a different choice about his decision. Okay, that makes sense. So we, I meant, went straight into medication because I think that's a big, I think it's a big topic in here. But you also mentioned different ways of supporting. Yeah, I mean, I think we all know that children who have ASD and ADHD respond differently in group situations. And by adapting some of those expectations, either by reinforcing, like I said before, for ASD, giving them social stories to understand situations, giving them visual timetables so they can visualize what's coming up next, that's been very, very important. For ADHD, I think we can also do a number of things to help support them Particularly, you know, when they're sitting in a school environment, long periods of time, we know they need to move. So allowing them to move as opposed to preventing them moving is a good idea. And it doesn't work for everybody, but allowing them very, very basically to fiddle with something when they're sitting and listening can have enormous benefits. It doesn't work all the time. It doesn't work for everybody. But, you know, that's a starting process. And when people start to sort of think differently about how people learn, it opens up a whole new channel of ways to support them. So as I said, allowing controlled movement, having breaks, chunking work into different parts, reducing things like homework. There's a stat which says it takes a child with ADHD three times as long to do the same piece of work at home as in school. Now, partly the reason for that is that the home environment won't always be able to support the child the second thing is that the child's concentration at the end of the day after surviving that day will probably be somewhat reduced from the exhaustion of having gone through the day. So, you know, things like that, organisation. Can I make this point? Not having a pen when you are 15 is not a crime against humanity. And, and I have seen so many exclusions happen of, in terms of someone overreacting to someone who hasn't got a pen for a child that's coming out the door in the morning, still got his bus pass, having his socks on the right feet, and maybe having most of his books with him plus anything else, that is, that is about as much as he can do. Because remember, he's 15, but he has the organizational skills of an 11-year-old, the expectation. So the pen is a bridge too far. And I just wish that we could be a little bit more flexible on that. And the thing about it is we as teachers think, you know, if we let him away with the pen, all the other kids will come in without pens. It's not the case. Children with ADHD, if I take a cricket analogy, you know, most kids are going through the school system. They're, they're playing test match cricket. They're playing the long game. They can see the end point. Children with ADHD are, are, are 2020 players. They live in the moment and we need to be supporting them in those times that we can help them, you know, get, get the runs on the board, so to speak, and be you know, in the hutch. And to me, I'm going to use the word reasonable. Accommodation. Accommodation. Yeah, yeah. A reasonable expectations, yeah. Yeah, it's not, it's not hard. And I, I sit there and I go, really? Really? And they might go, well, he's always forgetting it. It's like, mm. and it goes back to, well, surely you could also support this child. This child's always doing this. You might change something. I, I mean, I didn't quite explain. The, the, it's not the pen that causes the exclusion. It's the argument about yeah. the pen that causes the exclusion. And and I must admit, I have myself been quite rigid at times on things like this, but I've just learned that by, you know, by experience, if you like, that giving a child a pen, collecting it at the end of the day, giving it back to work better. I'll tell you what, what was interesting. He was happier. I was happier. 
and the rest of the class were happier because when I got in a bad mood about the pen with him, you know, in the end, they all suffered, so to speak, because I was in a rotten mood the rest of the lesson. And they brought pens in. And if you gave someone, I'm always saying this, you give them a pen, take the pen back. The other ones that bring pens in, raffle tickets to them once in a while, you know, chocolate bar, thank you for bringing your materials in. They're playing test match cricket. This one's playing 2020. And that's what you have to be thinking about. It's not giving up. He's not, he's not getting the better of you. It's just you're getting, it's a, the, the pen is a bridge too far yep. for that particular child at that time. It's just about, as you said, if, if he's not coming around with a pen and you're not, you, you'll then after that, you are not ready to help them learn. So you, that's what you're avoiding. It's not the pen isn't the issue. You can avoid it. You can do something else to avoid that situation. You said you had the pen. And, and this is what you said before about how labels can make a difference for certain people. See, certain people just play what's in front of them. They think that, He's got organization difficulties with the pen. I'm going to give him a pen. It's not, you know, it's not a crime. Other people need a reason, though, about why he should be treated differently, which is why labels are important for some people. I don't know why it has to be that way, but certain people, for example, a visual timetable is a very important thing to give to anybody if they need it, but certain people only give it if he's got a, a label to say he should have it. It's a bit like fiddling, you know, fiddling, again, is not a crime against humanity and not looking at you when you're speaking. But some people need a reason for why they would allow that. Other people just say, well, works for them. You know, now you're going to have more extreme behaviors, which will need to be supported by professionals. And that's when you'd be, you'd be looking at some of the things you mentioned with medication, because we have to make the point ADHD is like ASD. It's a spectrum you know, condition, and you can have mild, and you can have moderate, and you can have severe. I think it's you know really, if you're talking about medication, it would only really be the ones which have kind of the moderate and severe that you would be looking to 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 consider that for. With the mild, mild to moderate, so to speak, there's a lot of you know environmental and learning adaptations that can make a whole world of difference. So when you're talking about sort of mild, medium, mild, and severe, are you talking about all three sort of traits are exaggerated or can they be, one can be really, really hyperactive? Yeah, I mean, I think the hyperactivity, as I said before, is for me, it's kind of like a harder one to, to really focus on because it's part of them, you know, and you don't want to change them. I think if it's, I think what you need to learn, I suppose, is what the triggers are for, for what makes it, because in the old days, that there would be a myth that you had a very hyperactive child. You used to used to try and run, you know, run them, run it off them during break time and lunch time, so you'd wear them out. In reality, what that happens is you just wind them up more, so therefore you can't settle them down. So what is a better a better thing to do actually is to have a more controlled break time where you don't, you know, you don't allow the hyperactivity to, to increase, you kind of moderate it. So they might be coming back into class five minutes earlier, or you might have a structured, structured sort of period of time yourself. So I think hyperactivity is one that I'm less kind of, I see is less of an issue in terms of management. But the impulsivity and the inattention are really important. And I want to make this issue about how the ones who have impulsivity, the ADHD ones, they are very obvious. They're very overt. They, you see them, you notice them. But the ones that have the covert, the inattentive type, the mental drifters, these are the ones that have been drifting through our system for years and years and years. 
And just to give you an example again, the ratio of boys to girls in ADH is about four to one. But in the inattentive type, the ones that have the ADD, there's two to one ratio of girls to boys in that area. So the answer is boys make more of the noise, therefore get the recognition and to a certain extent the resources and consequences. Girls often drift through, and that's not just true in ADHD. It's also true, of course, in ASD. Interesting. Autism is the same. Is obviously the boys get noticed, and and they've looked at it's the type of play when they're younger means the boys are very. So it's interesting about the boys versus the girls. Yeah, I mean, I think it's and it's also interesting what you said about adults because I think again, you know, I would say that probably in the last five six years as well, I've seen so many more adults diagnosed and being self aware about ADHD. But actually, it's actually been far more women who have been sort of more proactive on this issue than, than their male counterparts. Even though there's fewer women and fewer girls, they've been more proactive on it. But many, many girls have survived primary school, drifted through it somehow, got to secondary school, and boom, the issues have become far more, more serious, if you like, because they haven't learned, they haven't got the same level of confidence in themselves. All sorts of aspects of learning and behavior and socialization are therefore laid bare for those individuals to have to deal with. Okay. And to me, I think we've covered everything. So I'm looking at the notes we've got here. And I think, yeah, we've covered most of the stuff. You've uh, given me a list of books to recommend and all of them seem to have your name next to them. Well, I, you know, I just, I don't know how that happened. It must have been a problem with the computer. Can, Maybe. I just... Without sort of summing up, I don't want to say we covered, we've covered an awful lot today and I hope it's been illuminating. I think what I really want to say though is that just making the point that if you have some of these traits, it is not a life sentence of, of saying that someone will not be successful or someone will not be creative because we do know that there is a trade-off here between some of the things that they don't appear to be able to do to the same extent as their peers they might have a lot of other gifts in other areas. And uh, a lot of our, you know, a lot, a lot of very successful entrepreneur type individuals out there will almost certainly have these traits. And I see these individuals around me every single day. I bet. I, bet. I, I do like, I've seen on a, there's a Facebook group and someone made a really nice, it was PDFs and it was, um, different people with different disabilities yeah. and you go through them and you don't realize how many actors have dyslexia and you're going you're what you're reading lines how are you and you sit there and all these people and there was lots of adhd and various people and it was sitting there and it is it's not it's not a life sentence it's not it's, it's a difference it's not disabling them it's not it is a di it is a difference i think we've be, it, it started off i think being seen very much in in like dyslexia in the without sort of in 30, 40 years ago was regarded very, very suspiciously by the educational community. They, uh, if I used to read papers saying in dyslexia was an excuse by the middle classes to justify why their children weren't doing very well. Well, we're not saying that anymore, but it took a long time for people like um, Susan Hampshire and Jackie Stewart and all these people to, to take away the stigma of dyslexia because it was a stigma. And now people don't see it that way. They see it more as a style, as a different style. And, and they also understand that people like Richard Branson might have had it and struggled, and yet he's come. 
ADHD has struggled a little bit in terms of its stigma. It was seen very much as an excuse and not an explanation. And it's kind of going through the same kind of process that this lecture is a better understanding for it. There's a better, you know, people are, are therefore less worried. And, and about. I mean, I, I have a story that, I mean, it was like 15 years ago, I had an education psychologist say to me when I lived in London, we don't have ADHD in Surrey. I think we have it in Liverpool, though. You know, and it was making this point that it was just not something that we, we, were, we, were, we were considered down here. And that has fortunately changed. And therefore, people, the stigma is, has, been, has changed a lot. There's better understanding, better recognition. And I think both children and adults are benefiting from being understood in a, in a more kind of positive and not negative way. I think, I think the, sort of the knowledge needs to grow because this is where I think class is generally looking at education and parents. But when you think of football coaches, when you think of any after-school activity, anything like that, there all need to there's always be a certain level of awareness, not necessarily the labels, but is you almost that happy to change, happy to adapt? I mean, I think we've come an awful long way when it comes to these areas of understanding. Again, ASD. I mean, I think when I grew up, I think the term autistic spectrum disorder. I think if you were to ask what what's your knowledge of that, most people would have said the Rain Man and. We, did, we had no understanding that it had such a range of differences that, that we just didn't know about. So I think greater awareness and understanding, and I think it's been really, really important that, and if there's any parents listening out there, I would, and you're struggling right now or you're, you're dealing with, with some people who are sceptical, then, then there's two things you can do. Number one is join a support group. You will meet people who understand exactly what you're doing, what you're dealing with, what you're going through, and you'll be able to share the resources and also be able to sort of share the understanding of of the things that that can work. And if you haven't got a support group around you, form one, because what will happen is you will change the future, not just for your child, but for the children of the future, because you'll be the people who will change the the lives and understanding of of this issue for many others in generations to come. Definitely. So although we have been talking around 45 minutes on this topic, the fact that Finton has written so many books on it means that we are really just scratching the surface. And there's so many variables you can throw into this which will have an impact and help that understanding and change lives. So I'm going to put a link to all of Finton's books in the show notes. There's Challenging Behaviours, Teacher's Pocketbook, Surviving, Succeeding in the SEN Continuum, The Small Change to Big Difference, there's lots of different areas, lots of ways of looking at it. So, yeah, so I'll put a link to all of those in the show notes. So thank you for coming on the show today. My pleasure, Dale. All the links going in the show notes. They Generally, wherever you're accessing the podcast, you'll see the show notes there, or you can access them on our website, which is www.thesendcast.com. Big thank you for listening to the show. If you haven't subscribed already, you can subscribe on our website, where you can also sign up for our newsletter to keep up to date with the latest news. Alternatively, you can follow us on Twitter at The Sendcast, on Facebook, The Sendcast, on Instagram, The Sendcast, or on LinkedIn. For some reason, you just search for Sendcast. And if you want to get in touch, let me know your thoughts, suggest topics, or anything else, please send an email to hello at thesendcast.com. And if you enjoyed The Sendcast, as I always say, please look into the virtual Send Conference and Parent Talks. Like The Sendcast, that is run by us here at B Squared, is a great way to get CPD and advice on a range of topics around SEND. 
And what makes the, the conference different is it's accessed across the internet. So the conference runs twice a year in March and November, and each conference has 12 highly valuable sessions designed to help you with each session having something you can take away. And Parent Talks, we are aiming to run twice a year as well, aimed at supporting parents across a range of topics. And you can buy tickets for future events or past events. The videos are always available. The cost for each conference for schools is £60 and the parents' events are £10. And for schools, that £60 covers the entire school, not per person. And as listeners to Sendcast, we're offering you a 10% discount on the school's events just by using the code SENDCAST10. So thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of the Sendcast. So goodbye from me. And goodbye from me.